And you're killing me, Smalls. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't think you should come to work drunk. <laughs> Just saying, sometimes when the Holy Spirit comes out, it's, it's a little goofy. <laughs> I just said to one of my Ironman brothers before I came up here, I said, this is a good morning, isn't it? He said, yeah, we're off to a good start. Don't ruin it. (laughs) Try not to ruin it or something like that. So I learned how to fight real good when I was about nine years old. I was taught how to fight by a kid named Ronnie Frazier. Ronnie was three years older than me. He had red hair and freckles and... uh, he was, uh, in my memory at least, he had a striking resemblance to Scott Farkas from the Christmas story up there. And kind of the same attitude. Ronnie didn't actually mean to teach me how to fight. It's just that he beat me up so many times that every time he'd come around, I'd bring a new move. I was a fighter when I was a kid. I was a scrapper. I spent a lot of time in the principal's office. Uh, a lot of moms came to our house, knocking on the door, talk to my mom. So many moms would come that she had a little number system out there. It was like, you're coming for Tom, take a number. I'm not sure what Ronnie's problem was with me, but uh, it might have been the fact that I was running my mouth all the time when I was a kid. Could have had something to do with it, but could have been just that he was a bully, too. You know, uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Los Angeles, and walking around those neighborhoods, there's something called the Los Angeles River, which is actually it's uh, the big uh, drainage system for the whole city. We called it the wash. You know, you've seen scenes from it at different, different movies. You've seen the cars chasing each other through it and stuff, and you weren't ever supposed to go down there because when it started raining with all that concrete and pavement, man, it filled up fast and it'd carry you away, and so... It was always all fenced in and everything, and there were big signs up that said, no trespassing or we'll kill you and stuff like that, you know, and get lectures in school and lectures at home about not going out. We called it the wash, not going down into the wash. Well, with all that attention, that's where we spent a fair amount of our time was down in the wash, catching tadpoles and stuff like that, you know, doing what kids do, right? Well, there was a bridge that was between my house and our uh, uh, elementary school that went over the wash. It was a footbridge, and it was fenced on both sides. It was probably six, eight feet wide. And Ronnie used to perch himself at the beginning or the end of that bridge and just pick on people. And, man, he'd just throw me up against that fence. And, uh, like I said, every time it happened, it was a little bit harder for him. But he was three years older than me. I was nine, he was 12, and he, he would take me. And I never, ever told my parents about Ronnie. I never, I never went home and said I'm being bullied or anything like that. But I did tell my big brother. My big brother, five years older than me, so I'm like nine. He's 14. We shared a room together. Seemed like a huge room. It probably wasn't very big. But we had two twin beds, you know, each against the wall with like a dresser in between. And we'd lay in bed at night and we'd talk in the dark, you know. And I remember laying there as a nine-year-old on my bed and kind of shooting this over to Jim. I said, Jim, Ronnie Frazier keeps beating me up. And he said, my, my brother was a pretty surly guy at the time. And he said, well, you tell him, next time he comes around, you tell him if he lays a hand on you that I'm coming after him. And I said, all right. <laughs> Couldn't wait for Ronnie to make his next move, right? 
And he did, and we got into our normal scuffle, and I said, I'll tell you what, if you lay a hand on me, my brother Jim's coming after you, and he blah, 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 blah. Ronnie also taught me some new words. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And, and it was over, and I went and told my brother Jim. I said, it happened. I don't know exactly what Jim ever did to Ronnie. I wasn't there. But I do know this. He never bothered me again. <laughs> he never, ever bothered me. I don't know what happened. But he never bothered me again. I learned something. I learned something at age nine. That is, you don't take on a bigger enemy all by yourself when help is available. When a great power, when firepower is available. Turn your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. I've got to preach real fast. I'll do the best I can. <laughs> Zechariah. Here we are, stop number 35 on our Through the Bible in the Old Testament. Next week we'll be done with the Old Testament. It's fantastic. 35, so we'll end up on 36. And some of you are going, aren't there 39 books in the Old Testament? There are, but remember we put the one and twos together, and there are three of those. And so that's how the math works on that. Okay. Zechariah was a prophet. Zechariah was a prophet around 520 B.C. by context. And he was uh, after the exile. i got to go real fast. If you want the full deal on this, pick it up online, okay? <laughs> you, do, you just got two points right there. <laughs> but the important thing is that after the exile, remember how they were all carted off to Babylon? And what happened was the, the Persians overtook the Babylonians. King Cyrus the Great, Persian, conquered the Babylonians in 539 B.C. And then he was followed by King Darius. And it says in Zechariah there, it says in the first verse, it says that in the, second, in the eighth month of the second year of King Darius, King Darius came to power in 522 B.C., so this is 520. But it was after the exile. These last three prophets we have in the Old Testament are all after the exile. Remember, before the exile was all the judgment, was all the repentance, was all, come on. And it was so harsh sometimes. But now we've got three prophets that are creating this incredible transition after the exile. They're the last three prophets of the Old Testament. And they create a kind of an on-ramp, I think, to the New Testament. Because there's a lot of transition that's occurring here between these two testaments. They create an on-ramp. It's not just a sudden arrival of Jesus if you'll let these three, three prophets do their work. There's a critical transition that's occurring here from religion to relationship. The Old Testament was about religion. Jesus came and said, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you what? Friends, I call you friends about relationship. The Old Testament was largely about appeasing God. New Testament's about enjoying God, right? You get this? And also, I think one of the great changes or the transition was that, that in these last three prophets of the Old Testament, there's a shift that goes from prophetic to pastoral. Meaning the first prophet's prophetic in that confrontational sense. They're always kind of in your face. These last three prophets are like, they're more pastoral. It's like a shepherd taking care of his sheep. And the heart of the Father really comes through in these last three prophets. I remember last week in Haggai, what did he say? What are the seven words that changed everything? I am with you, declares the Lord. That's different than you know, what we've heard before. And these... Um, 
these, this Zechariah is also filled with these um, kind of ancillary prophecies, if you will, uh, messianic prophecies, which are prophecies that say that Jesus is coming, tells where he's going to be from, talks about 30 pieces of silver, stuff like that. And it's also eschatological prophecies, and that's a big word for end time stuff, that a lot of revelation is connected to the book of Zechariah. And so it's full of prophecies. So this is the short version of the context. Man, we're making great time this morning. (laughs) The hot spot this morning is Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. As I just looked to the Lord and said, okay, that's fantastic, but how, how how can we really just bring this home for the people who you already know are going to be here today. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. So what's happening here is we're privy to a conversation between an angel and Zechariah. Angel's saying certain things, and then Zechariah's uh, saying what he said. And um, in verse 6, he's talking to Zerubbabel. Remember Zerubbabel from last week? He was the governor of the region, right? Because that's how King Darius set up the land. He set up the empire in like colonies and put, a, put an appointed official over, over each one. And so that's Zerubbabel. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This is powerful. Zerubbabel would have been exhausted. You, you see him in the book of Zechariah running around with, with something called a plumb line. And that's a weight on a string. And you can tell if something's plumb or not. And it says Zechariah was running around while the wall and temple and stuff were being rebuilt, and he's checking everything. So he is fully, fully immersed in this process. He's not a governor sitting in an office somewhere. He's running around. His mind has got to be just frazzled with how we're going to get all this stuff done. It looks like he's come to the end of himself. He doesn't have anything more to give. And the Lord comes to him and says, don't worry. It's not by your might. It's not by your power. But by my spirit, says the Lord. But by my spirit, says the Lord. Now remember, this is the on-ramp to the New Testament. And what did we already see when we looked at Joel? That Joel made this incredible prophecy about this time, right? Joel said that during this time, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so what was a representative kind of outpouring in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit now becomes a widespread, essentially universal outpouring of the Holy Spirit on believers. And so what's being said here, and I'm trying to get this as concisely as possible, what's being said here is that as spirit-filled believers, we have a much greater power available to us than than, than that which exists at the end of our own strength. So it's not by your might, it's not by your power, but it's by his spirit, says the Lord. And some of you are living on the edge of your own strength, aren't you? You're living in a place where it's like I can't do anymore. I can't run any faster. I can't jump any higher. I got nothing more to give. Fantastic. That's a great place to be if you'll let this word fall on you. It's not about your might. It's not about your power. But it's by the Spirit of God living inside of you. That the dynamic of being filled with and dwelt by the Holy Spirit and living as a Spirit-filled believer means that nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is the teaching of the scripture that nothing is impossible for us. When the angel of the Lord came to Mary and said, you're going to be the one to bring Christ into the world, she said, how can this be since I'm a virgin, right? What did the angel say? He says, well, it's not up to you that the Holy Spirit will come on you 
and you will be with child. You'll give birth, you'll call him Jesus, etc. And then the last thing the angel says in that passage is, for nothing is impossible with God. Jesus said it this way. Jesus himself, he said, if you have faith as small as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So this is the characterization of the scripture. Now, are we walking that out perfectly? Not at all. I think we're scratching the scratch on the scratch of what that really means. Of course, we're not walking that out perfectly. But how do we get greater at it? How do we get better at it except by embracing it as a reality by faith and saying, come, fill us, Holy Spirit, so that it's not about my power. It's not about my might, but it's by, about your power, your spirit, says the Lord. Is that making sense? Jesus said in John 14, 12, he said, I tell you the truth. Whoever comes after me will do what I have been doing, or who believes in me will do what I have been doing. He'll do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. What happened when Jesus went to the Father? He sent the Holy Spirit, right. And so here we are again in these minor prophets. Who would have guessed that the Holy Spirit would be so busy in these minor prophets, right? You've been flipping by them going, why would I ever read Haggai? Why would I ever read Zechariah? Come on, raise your hand if that's true. Come on, you know it's true. It's like, brrr, I can't even remember the order of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's easy. But Haggai, Zechariah, Zephaniah, I don't know. You see the richness of what's in here? We just have so much more power available to us than we realize. And sometimes I feel like we're going to the fight alone. We're facing a much bigger enemy than ourselves. We're taking a knife to a gunfight. We're forgetting. Forgetting. I just like in that night, laying there in that bed, just calling out into the dark. I was calling out to my brother, I realize. Just sending it out to a power greater than myself. <laughs> Ronnie Frazier's giving me trouble. Not anymore. That's what the answer I got back, right? Isn't that what prayer is? It's just calling out to the Lord in the darkness and saying, Lord, Ronnie Frazier's giving me trouble. Or whatever's in your blank, I'm at the end. I, I can't take him. I'm nine, he's 12. I can't, I can't not beat him up. I would if I could. I'd beat everybody else up, but I can't beat him up. And the answer is, that's all right. I got that one. Zechariah, right here in this book in chapter 3, I forgot it was in here. And it's something that God's been working on me for the last year. There's, I've had a more than a semantic shift in a portion of my prayer life. You know how we face certain things and we believe that Satan's involved in it and we say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Has anybody besides me ever said that thing or said to you, foul spirit, I, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus? And there's not a thing wrong with that. Because we're not really rebuking, are we? It's the power of the Lord in us and we're coming in the name of Jesus. I, I, I should say, I don't really think there's anything wrong with that. But I was getting frustrated. I've been frustrated that we're not advancing in the power of God to the degree that I feel like the Bible teases me for. 
And so I've been really contemplating this, studying this, and asking God. And so a fundamental shift happened. It's been happening for about the last year, and I don't even think I'm good at it yet, but I think I got something. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then he showed me Joshua. Remember Joshua from last week? Joshua, son of Jehozadak, was the high priest. Josh, same, same Zerubbabel and Joshua. Same thing happening. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. You know, that's, that's Satan's job. That's what he does by nature, is to accuse you. Is to tell lies. Put lies in your head. Tell lies about you. That's Satan's job. So he accused him. Look what happened in verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? He said, you're accusing my priest Joshua? He's a burning stick that I pulled from the fire, and on his behalf, I rebuke you, Satan. That sounds like a better thing, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound better? And so for about the past year, I've been trying to get in touch with, instead of my rebuking Satan, even in the power of the Spirit, moving to a place Well, I ask God to rebuke Satan. Well, I just say, rebuke Satan. I do it out on the wall. There's a place where for years I hit the wall when I'm praying out there, and I I always, I just rebuke you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. I pray for some of you by, by face and by name and situation. I rebuke you in their lives with mixed results. More recently, I get there, and I just say, Lord, would you rebuke Satan? I come to you in the name of your son Jesus. Would you rebuke Satan? And I've seen changes in some of your lives. Because of that, I believe. Now, I think I'm just getting used to this whole concept. I think it's going to only get stronger. But I'm just saying there's something in here that says, it's not by my might, not... don't. Don't you feel like sometimes when you're praying for somebody, like there's, there's just more to it that's up to you than ought to be? And it's just like, well, they didn't get healed because I didn't pray right. Come on, hello? I didn't pray strong enough, long enough, hard enough. I can't run fast enough. I can't jump high enough. You know you struggle with that stuff. That's the accuser. What if we said, I can't run fast enough. I can't jump high enough. Lord, would you rebuke him in Jesus' name? It's more than just a word change. It's a faith adjustment. I just feel like i got to show you this. It's in 1 John. No, it's not even 1 John. It's Jude. (laughs) Remember last time you read Jude? You do? You may go. I don't think... Strangest thing in Jude. I was going to say chapter 1, but there's only one chapter. (laughs) Jude's talking about these people who think there's no life to be lived. 
and you follow that heart after God. Say, do whatever you want. Jesus will cover it. Blasphemy. There's a life to live. There's a walk to walk. And then he calls them these dreamers. Verse 8, in the very same way these dreamers pollute their own bodies, they just do whatever they want with their bodies. Reject authority and slander celestial beings. And then the most interesting thing he says, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare bring a slanderous accusation against him, against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer sometimes, but I'm kind of thinking that if the archangel Michael doesn't directly rebuke Satan, but says, the Lord rebuke you, (laughs) might be something there. Holy Spirit, come. I pray, Father, that you'll come now in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. (laughs) Well, you've been so good to us this morning, Lord, in this rich...